Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. We're very much encouraging the community to tell us about how the well-being and safety of people with disabilities are being considered and indeed included in planning in emergencies such as the COVID-19 pandemic, which includes the voices and knowledge and expertise of people with disability. We don't want to leave anybody behind. We don't want to leave anybody out in the way that planning is done. COVID-19, the unique challenges of Indigenous Australians living with a disability and an uptake in the use of modern technology to stay viable in these uncertain times. As you know, this is all new ground for everyone and uh, this COVID-19 stuff happening, I suppose, we've decided for the managing markets to explore a virtual delivery of the markets. We will have our storeholders on a should I say, a market that is reality, but virtually um, there's going to be 20-plus storeholders who will be available on the, over those two days, plus there'll be some performances as well. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The COVID-19 crisis has left many people anxious and uncertain of their future, but for people living with a disability, this anxiety is exacerbated by the feeling that they are being left behind or ignored in government and community responses. Statistics show in Indigenous Australians are twice as likely to have a disability than other Australians. Andrea Mason is the Commissioner for the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with a Disability. So Andrea, what are your primary concerns during this time? The Disability Royal Commission has raised its concern through a recent statement of concern that there were concerns being raised by members of the disability community that they weren't being heard and their issues weren't being considered or indeed voiced as part of the government's communication about the COVID-19 pandemic and how the plans of keeping people safe and well um, were inclusive of people with disabilities, including First Nations people with disabilities. So that statement of concern was released on the 26th of March and uh, very encouraged that since that time, there appears to have been an increased focus on the needs of people with disability with the plans around keeping our community safe in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. So we welcome that. Um, We also welcome the government's new management and operational plan for people with disabilities. And obviously, First Nations people with disabilities are included in those plans, in those discussions. We really welcome that as well. Are there other strategies you'd like to see in place by the government? I think we need to have avenues for people with disabilities to have direct contact with trusted organisations who have very close working relationships and an understanding of the circumstances of people with disabilities, no matter where they live in Australia. And of course, first people with disability Network is the peak body for First Nations people and so any resources that organisation, indeed all disability advocacy organisations can have to have direct contact with people with disabilities to hear how these plans are being rolled out, um, if they're meeting their needs, um, if there needs to be further adjustments. Of course, we have to be flexible and open to adjustments as plans are being rolled out because people have different circumstances, they live in different locations, so therefore the way supports are provided may be a little bit different. But I think that that's a really important resource in terms of knowing that the plans are hitting the mark, but also for disability advocacy groups to be able to continue their support for their members and for those in the community with disability. Indigenous Australians are disproportionately affected by disability and you've been such a strong advocate in this area. For people who aren't aware of just how disability plays out in the Indigenous community, are you able to give us a bit of a snapshot of some of the statistics? When I was growing up in South Australia, I actually was working for, they call them a central agency. I was working for the Commissioner for Public Employment, uh, effectively the old Public Service Board. And as a young person, Larissa, I was very interested in special measures that the South Australian Government was leading 
to help particular groups in the South Australian community in having much more of an equitable service and representation in the public service in South Australia. This was in the mid-80s. And there were four groups that came under these special programs. And the four groups, um, which would be no surprise to you, were women, people from culturally and linguistically diverse groups, First Nations people, and people with disability. And it's interesting now that some 30 years later, these are the four groups that particularly need to be given special attention to during this COVID-19 pandemic, but indeed is being given special attention through the Disability Royal Commission in terms of reference. And we know that the representation of First Nations people um, with disability proportionally to the broader non-Indigenous community is higher And so we need to really see this Royal Commission have a very strong legacy of change and reform so that that aspiration of wanting to have an equal life and to be able to live their lives well in the community with all the advantages are there where it may not have been as fully advantaged or expressed in the last 30 years. So this is a really important opportunity for First Nations people generally, but particularly for First Nations people with disability. Obviously, the current health crisis that we're going through with COVID-19 is really putting a magnifying glass on a lot of issues. And I'm just wondering if you're able to share with us from the position you have leading the Royal Commission, some of the anecdotal accounts that you're hearing of how this pandemic is disproportionately affecting people with a disability. As you know, Aboriginal people live in very strong family groups and community groups. People may see that they live in what we would call as villages. And so in that context, being able to talk about the issues of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation in the context of people living in very close, supportive, but almost reliant relationships can be difficult. For example, there was a recent publication which was generated to tell the stories around uh, First Nations families where children have autism The book is titled uh, We Take Care of Our Own and I think that that can be expressed generally across the First Nations community where families and communities do take a very strong lead in looking after family members with a disability. And so in that context, we're really wanting First Nations people to trust the Royal Commission to tell us those stories where they may in the past have a reluctance to or feel that things may not change, but they might not have seen things change in the past. Improvement in services, improvement in advocacy, improvement in government investment in places where they live. But we're saying, please trust the Royal Commission to tell us your stories if, as First Nations people with disability, that you have experienced violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation in any life circumstance, whether it's at work or accommodation or in school or in, in health, um, across any area. And uh, we know that First Nations people are severely disadvantaged. Um, we can just look at health as, as an example to that. And so in this pandemic um, that we're experiencing at the moment, when we have First Nations people already experiencing concerning health, chronic disease, And we lay that on top of people with disabilities having particular health needs and concerns. Then the pandemic is really something that is causing great concern in the First Nations community. So uh, recently here in uh, the Northern Territory, we heard uh, leaders talking about access to food out in remote communities through community stores and calling for essential items in stores to really not have their prices gouged because it's going to create more stress, create more vulnerability with people not being able to access the nutrition that they need. And so you can include people with disabilities in that story because they are also living out in those communities. As if they don't have access to healthy food, then people's state of health, their wellness, their mental health starts to decline. And that's not what we want during this epidemic. So um, that's just one example. And obviously, that's right across people's whole life experiences. Discrimination and unconscious bias have also been identified as concerns. How does that play out and what can be done to alleviate it? In Australia, this issue of discrimination, particularly around racial discrimination, 
has long been a conversation. Often people have raised their experiences of being discriminated against because of their Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander heritage, but also they are discriminated against because of their disability. And so this is called the double disadvantage of people experiencing discrimination because of their disability and because of their race. And people can dismiss racism in Australia. That doesn't exist. What our Royal Commission wants to hear is from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people if they have experienced discrimination on the basis of their race and discrimination. I've heard examples of this happening in people asking for help through the justice system and also through the emergency health system where people have sought help and they have been prejudged or they have been stigmatised and assumptions made about their call for help and that stigmatisation has been completely wrong, that they are people with disability but they were being stigmatised around being drunk or intoxicated. It's an example that I've heard not just once but a few times talking to family members about their concerns about family members with disability and how they can be misunderstood as they go about their daily life in the broader community and therefore they don't get the help or the support or even just the respect that they should be afforded as members of the community. Access to healthcare, including prevention, screening and treatment for COVID-19 is a major barrier for those living in remote communities and also in rural communities. What are your thoughts on how we can address that access to healthcare? Um, We're really pleased that uh, NACHO, the National Aboriginal Community Control Health Organisation, is taking the lead in advocating for approaches for First Nations people in remote and regional communities to ensure that they are being well supported and kept safe during this COVID-19 pandemic. And as I said previously, we're really pleased that the government's new plan and operational plan for people with disability um, is being rolled out. And of course, those plans are being designed with the input and expertise of people with disability and their representative organisations. That's really important. So what we have to do now as Members of the community, as advocates, we have to monitor these plans to ensure they're meeting the needs of people with disability. So we would encourage people to provide that feedback to the Royal Commission because the issues paper that we have released recently on uh, emergency planning and response issues, we're very much encouraging the community to tell us about how the wellbeing and safety of people with disabilities are being considered and indeed included in planning in emergencies such as the COVID-19 pandemic and, of course, the recent bushfires. We really want to know how planning and thinking and involvement and implementation is being done, which includes the voices and knowledge and expertise of people with disability. We don't want to leave anybody behind. We don't want to leave anybody out in the way that planning is done. And so that emergency planning and response issues paper is to try and help the Disability Rural Commission understand how all governments are working together and are working consistently to ensure that First Nations people with disability, indeed all people with disabilities in Australia, are not being left behind, that they're very much at the centre of government planning. I just wanted to pick up one more point about the work of the Royal Commission because you've suspended public hearings, but you're obviously continuing to be incredibly proactive in this space. So can you just explain how the Royal Commission is going to continue to contribute to public dialogue on these issues moving forward, given all of the constraints you've got to work with? So, Larissa, you're right. We have suspended our public work. For example, we've suspended our public hearings community forums, community visits and private sessions. And that's really because of the advice from health experts around physical isolation, not social isolation. We really have to be proactive in maintaining social connection. But this is around keeping ourselves safe from the risk of people sharing this coronavirus. But we're still receiving submissions. So anyone can still share their story. We can do that by phone. We can receive submissions in writing and also through video, audio recording. So if people contact the Disability Royal Commission, the phone number is one 800 517 
or they can contact us through the email, which is drcinquiries at rawcommission.gov.au. Staff will be more than happy to assist anyone who would like to put in a submission to share their experiences of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation that they've experienced. Indeed, carers, family members or advocates can share their stories as well. To date, we've had about 800 submissions, which is really fantastic. Of those 800, there are around 27 of those from First Nations people. And so we're really encouraging during this time when when hopefully more people are online and are not as busy but can think about these issues, we're really encouraging them to put in their submission. We're also really keen to let people know that right now, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're not holding private sessions, but people can still register for a private session on our website. So we really encourage people to continue to engage with us. Our First Nations Indigenous Engagement Team, they are also contacting communities to have online sessions right across Australia in different locations. And so uh, hopefully people who are listening who are in communities and who have contact with organisations that are supporting people with disabilities, we uh, in the future will be making contact to have online meetings and discussions to really still connect with communities so that we can hear about their concerns and also as a way of encouraging people to put in a submission. And Andrea, just finally tonight, you've obviously done a lot of work in having to navigate the Royal Commission through this environment, but on a more personal level, obviously these changes are impacting all of us, the way we live, the way we connect to each other. How have you been adapting and what's been the impact Mm. on you and your family and how are you staying safe, healthy and sane? Yeah, Uh, I think I've taken up the opportunity of connecting with people online through Zoom and just taking um, those opportunities and being proactive in staying connected to people. As you know, Alice Springs is situated in beautiful country, um, the lands of the Aranda people here in Mabachua. That's the uh, central Aranda name for Alice Springs. So often I go for a, a walk in the morning. There seems to be more birds in the air now if there's less traffic and noise, um, which I just think is absolutely a wonderful way to focus for each day. So, um, so that's what I'm trying to do when I know that it's difficult time, but uh, I think that we're just really making the most of the situation and trying to stay connected as we possibly can with friends and family and work colleagues. Andrea, thank you so much for taking time with us tonight on Speaking Out and sharing what's happening with the Royal Commission. My pleasure. Andrea Mason is the Commissioner for the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with a Disability. And just a reminder that if you or someone you know would like to contact the Commission, the phone number to call is 1800 517 199 or you can send them an email to the address drcinquiries at royalcommission.gov.au. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berend and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. As COVID-19 restrictions begin to be eased in some states, law enforcement is expected to come down hard on those deemed too eager to return to normal life. And while we are being reminded that the situation is far from over, concerns have been raised over the policing of the measures, which can often be at the discretion of officers who fail to take into account the problems faced by societies most marginalised. As such, leading Indigenous legal organisations have called on governments to decriminalise behaviour relating to COVID-19 and instead prioritise increased health messaging as part of their response. But how realistic is that prospect? Co-chair of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, Cheryl Axelby, will join me shortly. Right now, though, some music from John Williamson and Warren H. Williams. In 1998, they released this version of John Williamson's 1987 classic, Raining on the Rock.
to burgundy and spin a fetch to gold. Just come out of the mold, girl, where the plans forever roll. And Albanese Madeira has painted all the scenes, and the shadows change the luster of our land. And it's raining on the rock in a beautiful country, and I'm proud to travel this big land. As an Aborigine, it's raining on the rock. What an almighty sight to see! And I'm wishing and I'm dreaming that you were here with me. Everlasting daisies and a beautiful desert rose. Where does their beauty come from? Heaven knows. I could ask the witch till, but he's way too high. I wonder if he understands. It's wonderful to fly. And it's raining on the rock in a beautiful country. That's John Williamson and Warren H. Williams with their critically acclaimed track, Raining on the Rock. The song featured on Williams's second album, Country Friends and Me. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. The peak body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services is calling on governments to help prevent Indigenous deaths in custody as a result of COVID-19. Advocates are concerned an outbreak within the prison system could have a devastating impact on inmates, 28% of whom are Indigenous. Cheryl Axelby is co-chair of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, or NATSELS. Cheryl, thanks for your time. What impact would a COVID-19 outbreak in the prison system have? Well, many of our mob in the prison system have chronic health conditions and disability. So if they contract the virus in prison, we're concerned that their lives will be on the line and we're also concerned about the possibility of you know, having further black deaths in custody occurring as a result 
How have authorities gone about mitigating those risks that you're identifying? Well, so far the government's response has been to lock down prisons, stopping visits and putting new prisoners into isolation. And, you know, we understand that some governments are probably doing more than others in looking at how they're providing, so rather than people having to purchase some, giving them increased phone calls because of like they're not being able to have visits. But that's not a standard that's actually happening across all prisons. And, you know, we're really concerned about the lack of contact with family for a lot of our mob in the prison system. So they're taking every measure to try and stop coronavirus happening within the prison system. But of course, you know, what our concern is, is our mob are the most highest at risk of contracting the virus. And with our high incarceration rates already in prisons, um, we're really concerned that should an outbreak occur, that you know, our mob will be severely impacted. Now, you've obviously called for a different strategy, which is the immediate release of low-risk First Nations inmates. Can you explain what that would mean and why you think that's a priority? Well, I suppose firstly, around the world, governments are recognising release of imprisoned peoples as a responsible thing to do to contain the spread. You know, it's from England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, US, Canada... Indonesia and Germany, they've been taking measures in regards to, you know, doing things such as like releasing prisoners and they've set up like strategies about how they do that. What we're calling for is immediate release of our mob in prison who are most at risk with pre-existing health issues, including our elderly, our mob who have chronic health conditions, disability and mental health conditions. We are saying that, you know, there could be fast-tracking bail applications because a lot of our mob are actually in custody on remand rather than actually doing a sentence. And we're calling for those who are imprisoned for terms of six months or less to be considered for release. And as well as our mob who are eligible for early release and who have six months or less to serve, that they expedite parole processes. Because end of the day, what we're saying is that we're all better off when we're all healthy and especially the most vulnerable in our mob, which is a lot of our mob in prison. It strikes me hearing you talk about those strategies, which sound like really Mm. good common sense strategies for dealing with a health crisis, that Mm. they would actually be good strategies for the system generally. Uh, Absolutely. Right across the board, we think that this would be a strategy that all governments could implement right across all their prison systems. And, you know, just an example, like, you know, what's been actually happening in other countries that we're sort of aware about. You know, United Kingdom, they're releasing pregnant people in custody. You know, that's another thing that we should be looking at here in Australia. And they've also released around about 4,000 people in custody who had two months or less to still serve. Uh, Ireland has proposed to release prisoners with less than 12 months to serve. And over in Indonesia, I think they've released 22,000 inmates with a bid to reduce the risk of the transmission of it in the overcrowded detention facilities. So again, you know, there's really good world best practice happening globally and we're just saying, well, you know, why wouldn't we consider that, those strategies in Australia? You've also advocated for the decriminalisation of behaviour relating to COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about the issues you're identifying there and why that's a priority? Well, as we have experienced, you know, when fines are allocated or introduced, uh, where police have the power to find that people. A lot of our mob are usually highly overrepresented in receiving fines. And this has been evident for years in many areas. And I can talk about different things, but you know, I can talk about Sedona in South Australia, for instance, where they were introducing a lot of fines in regards to, you know, dry um, areas. And a lot of our mob have been severely impacted by those fines. So what we're saying is we need to stop the flow in prisons and the police officers in particular and the courts can actually play a real key role in ensuring that they play their part to beat coronavirus and to stop the flow of our people going into prison. So some of the things that we're talking about is focus on giving our people more warnings and cautions for low-level offences instead of arresting them and to rely on the diversionary options that are already available to them. Have a moratorium on executing warrants for arrest for low-level offences for at least six months period and prioritise proceedings by way of summons and to list matters as late in the year as possible. So, you know, police must not use COVID-19 fines to over-police our communities is what really the key messaging is. And we're asking that they also work with local communities to develop alternatives and to focus on clear um, communication strategies to ensure everyone's safety. Again, this sounds like really good common sense approaches to 
dealing with these issues. What's been the response from the community, the police and the government to the advocacy you've been doing in these areas? Well, we know that community members are quite supportive. We've been working with families who have experienced black deaths in custody to help us put a position paper together on this issue. We've also written to every state and territory minister highlighting and again reiterating our calls that they introduce these measures within their institutions across Australia. Um, We've received a couple of responses, a couple that in a sense are perhaps not the best responses where they're deflecting you to different other ministers um, rather than actually seriously taking on the issue. Um, But we've had some good responses from New South Wales and ACT as to the measures that they're undertaking and that they're considering some of the measures that we put forward. We've seen an increase in surveillance and police powers and a restriction on freedoms of movement during this time of crisis. But going forward, do you have any concerns about these powers staying in place in the longer term? Well, I think all Australians are really concerned about the ongoing aspects of such powers. You know, these measures have been introduced for a period of time to deal with a very serious health issue. And I don't think any of us have any issue of these in this period of time. But we need to make sure that once COVID-19 matters have resolved, that things go back to normal and that our community members are able to freely go about their business like they had previously. Cheryl, this period has really highlighted across a lot of areas the importance of our community-controlled organisations. And just listening to you speak now on the issues that NATSILs have been identifying, the work that ALSs are doing around the country, I was wondering if you could share with us some of your observations about the evidence of why the ALSs are so important during a time like this and what things we should be doing to support them going forward. Well, I think it's really critical that our Aboriginal legal services have always played a key leadership role on a number of issues that impact across our communities. And I think it's because we are so widely spread within each of our states and territories and we are also very connected at a national level. So each Aboriginal Torres legal service in each state and territory form the membership of the national body, the National Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, And we come together and we identify the key issues in common so that we can actually have a collective response to try and make positive change for our mob and the justice system. And particularly, you know, when we're talking about this type of issue at the moment and having a voice, I suppose, for a lot of our community members who can't have their voices heard, and particularly for our mob in prison in the justice system. And I'm talking about our young fellows in the justice system as well, not just, you know, the adult prison system. And also, you know, our women, where we've seen such a dramatic increase of our women now being incarcerated more than ever before. It's important that our mob get behind our services and support us so that we can continue to take up those causes. I'm just glad that we're starting to see like a bit of a reduction in the curve and it shows that Australia has been taking some really good measures and just about how we support our communities. Because I think, you know, the most vulnerable are our mob living in, you know, real remote communities and the cost of living for a lot of our mob in those areas is actually having a big impact. Just finally tonight, you've obviously been incredibly active being an advocate and you know, really dealing with a lot of the coalface issues. And you've had to do this while, like the rest of us, you've had to be in social isolation. How have you adapted to the changes and what's that been like for you and your family? Well, I've got two lovely elderly parents, uh, mum and dad, and you know, dad's going to be 81 and mum's going to be 79 this year. So me and my two sisters and our children have been doing everything we can to ensure that mum and dad are staying safe because they're at high risk of contracting COVID-19. So, you know, we do everything that we can, just as all our community mob do in looking after our orders. Also, I've got aunties that I, I make sure that, you know, do check in and make sure that they're okay and that their needs are okay. Working in isolation, we've reduced our attendance in some of our ALS's offices, but it doesn't mean the work has stopped. You know, we've got our lawyers who are still attending to the courts um, to provide representation for our mob and same with our Aboriginal field officers doing the after-hours response service for mobbing who are arrested. So, you know, it's business as usual. We're just working differently. We're maybe having a lot more contact with each other through um, utilising, you know, the Zoom and, you know, the audio-visual tools, which I think has been deadly. 
And, you know, we have a really good, strong leadership team at Legal Rights and SA, and we meet um, very regularly to ensure that we're on top of this and supporting our staff because working from home can also be detrimental for some followers, as we know in our communities as well. So, and particularly for our elders, you know, not getting out and about like they normally do. You know, that's what I think impacted on my mum and dad is being at home all the time can actually be quite depressing too. Cheryl, thank you so much for all your good work during this time and for sharing your insights into these issues with us on Speaking Out this evening. Thanks for having me. And um, everyone out there, keep safe and keep supporting your communities. Cheryl Axelby is co-chair of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Social distancing measures and restrictions on public gatherings has seen event organisers, artists and business owners harness modern technologies to stay viable during these uncertain times. The Mianjin Markets, held in Brisbane, is an annual event celebrating Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander arts, crafts and culture through market stalls, performances and workshops. This year, the festival will be held online via Facebook and YouTube. To tell us more, I'm joined by Charlie Jaya, a member of the South East Queensland Indigenous Chamber of Commerce. Charlie, welcome to Speaking Out. For those who don't know, tell us a bit about Mianjin. Okay, Mianjin is, um, well, Mianjin is the name of Brisbane, uh, the Aboriginal name from Brisbane. And uh, it is the name that's been given to the markets that the Chamber of Commerce have put together that happens twice a year since the Commonwealth Games. Now, this year it's going to be held virtually. How is this going to work? Oh, interesting question. <laughs> As you know, this is all new ground for everyone. And, uh, you know, with this COVID-19 stuff happening, I suppose, we ultimately can't get together, so... We've decided that as a board, I've supported the subcommittee for the Mianjin Markets to explore a virtual delivery of the markets. So we're currently putting in place some processes, I guess, to be able to deliver that. It's going to be a two-day virtual festival where we'll have our um, storeholders. We usually, you know, we have around about 30 or 40 storeholders on a should I say, a market that is reality, but virtually um, there's going to be 20, or, you know, maybe 20 plus uh, storeholders who will be available on the, over those two days who will be just promoting their products and uh, how to purchase their products, all that type of stuff, and a bit of background on who they are and their story, I guess. Plus, besides that, you know, there'll be some performances as well. So why, from your perspective, is it so important that this festival goes ahead as planned? I think it's like most people, businesses, some businesses are, you know, are struggling at the moment in terms of where they're at because of this, of sales are down, all that type of thing. We wanted to kind of look at it in a different way where we can still get our businesses, you know, in the spotlight, presenting and, and promoting their uh, products and stuff and kind of keep business going, like not as normal, but in the new normal, I suppose, so in this new world that we have to, you know, we're forced to live our lives. So uh, it's really, can I say, courageous by our chamber, by the members of the of the chamber as well as, um, you know, the subcommittee and their creative producers and everyone that's involved in the markets to start looking down this way of doing business. And this may be a one-off or it may, in fact, change the way we do business in terms of festivals. More broadly, just from your perspective and what you're seeing, what have been some of the impacts of the COVID-19 restrictions on Indigenous business? Um, Like any sort of kind of tragedy, disaster or interruption, I guess, there's always people that will benefit from that particular situation and others that won't benefit. And I think that a lot of our businesses are in that space at the moment. For instance, I've got a little pizza shop on North Strapper Island that is still operating but lesser hours but still providing for that community and hasn't totally closed down if you like and uh, it's going to support the community for as long as it can and I think there's a lot of businesses that are doing that whereas there are other businesses that are completely shut down so it's (laughs) what comes out of these types of events I suppose is that you know there are businesses and there are people that will survive be stronger to survive that and there are others that won't be and uh I think that we need to be able to look at how, as an organisation, especially a Chamber of Commerce, can support those that aren't doing so well. 
Just uh, listening to what you've been saying about the thinking behind Mianjin and also the issues facing Indigenous businesses, uh, it's clear that at a time like this, innovation is going to be important. Has that been your observation? Yes, we could probably call it innovation. We could also call it survival, if you like. And uh, I think our people have been surviving for a long, long time and, uh, you know, against a lot of things that kind of didn't go our way. But uh, certainly innovation is there. And uh, to survive, I suppose, uh, if we can use that innovation to, you know, bring business to our businesses, it would be fantastic, I think. I think it's going to be a really interesting and exciting time. Are you confident the community will take up the idea of a visual arts and culture festival online? Um, yeah, um, look, I think everyone's looking down this way at the moment in terms of communication and uh, news and awareness and shopping, if you like. Um, a lot of people are now you know, buying stuff online. There are things happening where you can get stuff dropped at your door. Um, I think this is no different. I think that in terms of business and, and providing goods and services this is a great way to go the other thing is of course is entertainment as well and so a lot of our businesses a lot of the products out there it is a you know an artisan sort of festival so a lot of them are artists and creators and also performers so it will be quite i think it'd be quite exciting uh in terms of that blend with some you know great uh, entertainment as well that'll happen throughout the two days just thinking in the longer term, obviously you're navigating a crisis as it's occurring, but have you got any thoughts about what a Chamber of Commerce might be looking to do in the longer term once the immediate crisis has passed as we go into the next phase? Oh, look, I think it's uh, definitely going to change. Well, it has changed the world. and I think it's going to change the way we do business as well, so uh, as, a, as an organisation. You know, where a lot of us have, um, I might add that our chamber is uh, made up a lot of volunteers, so people on the border are volunteers and that are business people. And so it's actually going to change the way we look at operating, I suppose, and living our lives. So I think that, you know, online staff is going to be the way. Uh, meetings that are held by Zoom calls uh, where we can get everyone on board to, um, you know, make decisions in terms of the chamber. We've got a, a special general meeting tomorrow to look at our constitution, so we're doing that online. We can't physically get together because of the social distancing or physical distancing, but we can actually do this online and, and make that happen. So I think this has kind of influenced us to go down this path. And um, should this become quite normal for the next three to six months, wherever the, whenever this thing finishes... You might see that a lot of that stuff will remain and continue to be normal practice, I suppose, into the future. Just back to Mianjin, what are some of the highlights of this year's program? Um, well, like I said, it's a two-day event. It's on May the 8th and 9th. Um, it's got a mix of live and pre-recorded broadcasts um, on Facebook and also YouTube. You know, there's uh, as customary, we, we will go through the program as we do as if we're getting together, and that's obviously started by Welcome to Country and also some performances by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander dancers. We have some musicians that are, are, are also in the lineup. Um, I believe Jen Casadali and Benny Walker is going to be there, as well as uh, Rochelle Pitt, performing, entertaining uh, us online. So, you know, there'll be also some workshops. So normally uh, at uh, the Manager Markets in Brisbane, we'll have some workshops around things like uh, fire and string making um, workshops, I suppose, and didgeridoo type workshops as well. You know, so cooking demonstrations using some of our native bush tucker, I guess, and uh, some techniques and ingredients, I guess, that can uh, you know help with uh, the palate, I guess, in terms of food. So there's quite a, a mixture and quite a, a variety of different um, activities that are going to happen over those two days. So I know we can't why not replicate what we get when we were actually at Brisbane uh, in that location? But uh, the feeling of that, you know, uh, it's a really good vibe at the major markets. That's what I'm trying to say is that uh, when you're there amongst the crowd, amongst the vendors and amongst the entertainment and the workshops and all that sort of stuff, it's really good. Um, I'm hoping that this is going to flow on into this virtual presentation of the markets. Now, if people want to find out a little bit more about Mianjin 2020, how can they do that? Okay, so as more information comes to hand, as I said, this is all new ground for us and uh, new ground for everyone. 
there'll be more information on our website, on our Facebook pages. So if you just do the Google search, Me Engine Markets, or if you're on Facebook, certainly, um, you know, search for Me Engine Markets. As um, we get closer to the day, uh, to the actual delivery of the markets, there'll be lots of information in there how we can um, participate and how we how we view those particular interviews and podcasts and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Charlie, just finally tonight, speaking to you, it sounds like you're quite an optimist by nature. And I was wondering if you could share with us, everyone's been going through massive changes in how we live our lives. How has it impacted on you personally and what sort of mechanisms have you kept in place to stay so positive? Um, look, uh, I actually had a call yesterday um, about this with a friend of mine, a mate of mine, and we do something on, on you know, uh, Facebook Live, I suppose. So one of the things I guess is that, you know, to stay positive, um, it's probably not to, to watch the news too much. I think it's um, it gets a bit depressing. So I tend to watch it once a day and, and hear the update, and then for the rest of the day, um, you know, there's no news. And... Um, the other part of it is also being kind to yourself, you know, uh, not to beat up on yourself in terms of, uh, so if you're, for instance, um, you know, out of work or um, yeah, the isolation is not um, working for you uh, as well as you would think it would be and uh, if you're having a hard time of it, just don't beat yourself up too much. The other thing is also look after your health and uh, look after your family. You know, isolation also brings us all closer together. So I said to my friend yesterday that, uh, you know, my wife and I haven't been 24-7 ever. Uh, we're now 24-7. Um, so in that, there's a whole lot of stuff that uh, may happen, positive and negative, but certainly take some time for yourself to go and you know do something for yourself, um, whether that's go for that walk, get in the kitchen, create something, paint something, do something that's just for you because uh, uh, when you're in close quarters with someone for <laughs> the whole day, you know, you need to have some sort of diversion and you need to look after yourself. The other thing, I suppose, is that it helps us to create, to imagine and, and to think about going forward in terms of what you do in terms of work or what you do in terms of family, um, you know, recreation, sport, whatever. It just gives us a, uh, an opportunity to take a breath and think about, well, okay, at the end of this, what's going to come out of this and how will that you know, affect me and how will that influ- influence the way I do things? So, yeah, it's... It's kind of interesting. I mean, we can sit and watch TV and be, you know, absorbed by all of the tragedy, I guess. Um, there's some really good news in there as well, I should, I should say. But if you continue to watch it, the negative stuff tends to take over. So I just think, get away from that. I'm, I'm starting to read a book and, uh, you know, I haven't read a book. For, I'm not an avid reader, so um, I haven't read anything for quite some years now. And uh, I'm getting back into doing that. Uh, so, yeah, it's, for me, just to stay optimistic, I think there's going to be... We're going to learn a lot of things along the way in six months and um, hopefully that will influence the way we do business going forward or the way we live our lives going forward. So it's just stay in contact with family and friends, whether it's in person, at a distance, but also online. You know, I get to use the social media, that's it. all those platforms that connect people. Certainly it's uh, important that we do that. And uh, like I said, also take some time out for yourself. Charlie, what a delight to have you on Speaking Out tonight and all the best for the Mianjin markets. And I must say one great thing about having it online is people like myself who would not have been able to get to them in person can actually check them out. So I hope it'll be a wonderful success for you. Well, look, if you can check it out, when this all blows over, you'll have to get to one in person. I will indeed. It's a date. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Member of the South East Queensland Indigenous Chamber of Commerce, Charlie Jaya. The Mianjin Markets will be held virtually via Facebook and YouTube May 8th and 9th. This is Speaking Out, a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs show produced and presented by Indigenous broadcasters on ABC Radio. That's all we have time for this evening, but to take us out, we'll leave you with some music from Rochelle Pitt. Back in 1999, she released her debut album, Black to Reality. This next song was one of the standout tracks on the album. Here she is with Identity. What's your
the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you a fresh perspective on the treaty campaign in Australia. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.